Uh, two weeks ago, when we, began, when we began this short series, Advent Foretold, I shared that our hope in examining four of the Old Testament prophecies that foretold Christ's coming in great detail, our hope in this short series is to stir up a renewed confidence that the Bible is God's unfailing word and every word in it is altogether trustworthy. There's always a blessing in having our confidence in God's word renewed. So that's one aim in this series. A second aim in examining four prophecies of Christ's coming is to bolster our assurance that Jesus really is the Lord, Savior, Messiah, through whom we are redeemed from sin and reconciled to righteous life with God forever. In the books of Genesis, Numbers, 2 Samuel, and Isaiah, it was foretold that the coming Messiah would descend from a very specific line, the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and King David. Well, Jesus descended from that precise line. In Hosea, Jeremiah, and Isaiah, it was foretold that the coming Messiah would spend a season in Egypt due to a massacre of children at his birthplace. He would be called a Nazarene. He would minister in Galilee after a messenger would prepare the way for him. Well, Jesus, announced by the messenger, John the Baptist, did all of those things. In Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Zechariah, and the Psalms, it was foretold that the Messiah would be prophet, priest, and king, but rejected by his own people, falsely accused, betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver that would be used to buy a field. He would be mocked and beaten, pierced in his hands, feet, and side. He would be crucified with criminals, but not a single one of his bones would be broken in the process. He would be given vinegar to drink before his death. After his death, he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. Soldiers would gamble for his clothes, and then he would resurrect from the dead. Each of those things prophesied hundreds of years before Christ would come were prophesied and he came and he fulfilled every last one to a T. Now this morning, some 700 years before Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, the prophet Micah, inspired and guided by the Spirit of God, foretold not only that the Messiah would be physically born, he foretold precisely where he would be born in a really little, insignificant town called Bethlehem. So when we consider all of these messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled to a T, man, it should vanquish every and any doubt. The Bible is the utterly true, unfailing word of God and Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah, the one and only hope of the world. He is, he is. So now before I read today's passage from the book of Micah, and if you're not there in your Bible or on your device, I would encourage you to to turn there. But before I read today's passage, look, very little is known about the prophet Micah 
but much is known about the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel to whom Micah spoke on behalf of God around the late 700s and early 800s BC. So remember with me, tiny bit of biblical history for just a moment, remember with me that after King David's son, King Solomon, chased after the foreign gods of his concubines, idolatry and corruption severed God's people into two kingdoms. Northern was Israel, southern was Judah. They were once one people, right? And near the end of the 700s BC, as idolatry and corruption continued to pervade those kingdoms, all around the same time, God raised up four prophets, Amos and Hosea, to prophesy against Israel and to call them to repentance, and Isaiah and Micah to prophesy against Judah and to call them to repentance. And recorded in this book, this little book of Micah, are prophecies, declarations to both the northern kingdom of Judah and the southern kingdom of Israel, and they foretell their frightening declarations of coming judgment. If we were to read through the whole of the book of Micah, which wouldn't take long, but we're not going to this morning, in chapter one, Micah foretells that Samaria, a city in the northern kingdom of Israel, would very soon be conquered by the Assyrians on account of, the Israel, of Israel's corruption and sin. In chapter three, Micah foretells then that Jerusalem in the southern kingdom would soon be conquered by the Babylonians and ushered into exile on account of their corruption. Both of those hostile takeovers historically happened just as Micah through God said would, 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 would occur. But in chapter five, as we're about to see in just a moment, Micah also foretells of a coming hope for God's people. So God's judgment would soon come, but so would his mercy, and his mercy would triumph over judgment. Hallelujah. So now I'd invite you to follow along as I read Micah's divinely inspired words uh, to the kingdom of Judah in this passage, and I'm gonna begin reading in verse one of chapter five. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we believe that you have spoken and that you desire to speak to us in your word. And in our reading of it just now, we believe that you are doing that. And so now we ask for the remainder of our time that you might help us to understand eyes to hear, ears to hear, hearts to receive, minds to believe, lives to commit to what we have read for your glory and our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray, 
Amen. So what we've just read was foretold hundreds of years in advance. And what we've just read is this, that a majestic ruler from ancient days would be born of a woman in the little town of Bethlehem. He would reunite and shepherd the people of God with the strength of God to the ends of the earth and he would be their peace. For the remainder of our time, on this third Sunday of Advent, let's consider two things and be encouraged by two things. Number one, the purpose of the Messiah's birth. And number two, the place of the Messiah's birth. Both those things are kind of obvious, but we'll unpack them nonetheless. The purpose of the Messiah's birth, the place of the Messiah's birth, let's dive in here. Number one, the purpose. In the second half of verse two, look down with me. We're told that the coming Messiah shall be for God from ancient days. Now, we recently concluded a series in the book of Genesis. Remember back with me all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, 15 in the Garden of Eden. We, we read the first promise, the proto-evangelium, the first promise of good news and a deliverer who was coming. So that's pretty ancient, but it gets even more ancient than that. In Ephesians 3, verses 9 through 11, and 1 Peter 1, verse 20, we're told that the Messiah's coming, that his living, his dying, and his rising was all planned by God before the earth was formed. From ancient days, indeed. The Messiah's earthly birth would not mark his being created. His earthly birth would mark his descending and putting on flesh to be with his creatures. And his coming was for God. Oh man, let's not miss this. It's written right here. His purpose in coming to magnify the Father through the Spirit, his deepest and primary purpose in coming was for the glory of the Godhead. Now, Follow me on this for just a second. Years ago, a Christian songwriter named Paul Balash, love the guy, he wrote a song, popular worship song entitled Above All. And if you have not heard that song, it goes like this. The, I'm not gonna sing it. The chorus goes like this. Crucified, laid behind a stone, you lived to die, rejected and alone, like a rose, trampled on the ground. You took the fall, and thought of me above all. The song overall is pretty good. But even Paul Balash, who authored that song, has since realized the major error of that last line. Christ, in his coming, in his living, in his dying, and his rising, he did not think about me above all. He did not think about you above all, lest we become man-centered in our theology. He thought of the glory of the Father above all. His coming was for God, as we're told right here in Micah 5 too. Let us fight the temptation to make even Advent all about us. It's all about him. 
literally all about him. His first and primary purpose in dying and rising and his first and primary purpose in being born in the first place was to glorify the Father through God the Spirit. That is, to showcase each of God's eternal attributes. Think about what we get to see when we read and imagine Jesus and people who were his, you know, on the earth with him, what they got to see with their eyes, the grace and mercy and love of God on full display, the holiness, power, and wrath of God on full display, especially at the cross, the sovereignty, patience, and faithfulness of God on full display. Each of these eternal attributes and more were displayed in Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. It is no wonder why the first words uh, from the multitude of angels after they announced to the shepherds that Jesus has been born, it's no wonder that their first declaration was glory to God in the highest. Look at this, babe. Glory to God. It is you. It is your story. It is your glory. So yes, he was born as peacemaker, thank God, between holy God and sinful man like myself. Micah 5.5 tells as much. He was gonna be their peace, our peace. But his primary purpose, oh, no man-centered advent here. Sorry, gonna rain on the parade. His primary purpose was to display the manifest glory of God upon the earth for the glory and honor of God. So I don't know how else to say it, Advent isn't about me, primarily. It's not about you, primarily. It's not about gifts, songs, traditions. Advent is about God in Christ. Hallelujah. Now in verse three, we're told that by his birth, there would be an ingathering, a reunion of God's people whom he would rule and shepherd. Now remember, at the time of Micah's prophecy, God's people were divided into two corrupt kingdoms. And those fearsome armies of Assyria and Babylonia, Babylon would soon capture them and usher them into exile. Now can you imagine knowing that impending judgment is coming, but then hearing that this Messiah would ingather and reunite and establish peace as shepherd ruler Can you imagine what this promise might have meant to the small, faithful remnant of Jews who were trying to worship God despite just the rampant corruption? A ruler who is from ancient days is going to be born and he will gather up his people from the ends of the earth by the strength of God, in the strength of God, to shepherd and to secure and to be their peace. Now, let's apply this for 30 seconds. This prophecy should give us solace and stability right now in the midst of our current political and societal woes, upheaval seems to be all around us. In the midst of all our tumult and trial, we have a shepherd ruler from ancient days who governs this world by the strength of God and in him right now, we possess his peace. I often don't pause long enough to actually sit and settle in his peace but it's mine and it's yours 
by the blood of Christ. Look, the author of Hebrews, whoever, whomever that is, in, in chapter two, verse eight, he really kind of marvels, because there was upheaval going on. There has been upheaval throughout all the generations. He marvels at this. Wait a minute, the shepherd ruler is in control. The government's on his shoulders right now? Like how, how what, what, is, what is going on? The writer of Hebrews 2.8 says this, at present, we may not see how everything is in subjection to the shepherd ruler of all things. We may not see it, but he finishes, but everything is in subjection to him for nothing is outside his control. Hebrews 2.8 Be reminded of this with me. Be astounded at this with me. Every time you see a, an image of a manger or hear a song about a manger and about a baby therein, be, be astounded with me that the shepherd ruler from ancient days, king of all kings, lord of all lords, who came for the glory of God and to be our peace he, that little babe, he, he was born in a manger. Marvel at that. How, how can you hold all things together? How can you be shepherd ruler over all things and yet, and yet stoop so low? And next week, Lord willing, if Jesus doesn't return, we're gonna talk about uh, he will be born low. We're gonna talk about the humility and lowliness of Christ Number two, the place of his birth. In the beginning of verse two, Micah foretells that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Look, we, that seems right on because we, we know the story. But Bethlehem was so tiny and inconsequential it barely made it onto the map of Judah. Now, sure, right? Sure, Rachel's tomb was nearby, Sure, Ruth and Boaz met at a gleaning field nearby. Sure, David had tended his sheep nearby before becoming king and then moving to the big city of Jerusalem. But Bethlehem was so meager that after the Jews are captured by Babylon, they're in Babylonian captivity, and after they are released to come back home, Ezra 2.21 tells us that only 123 people returned to Bethlehem. So let me put that into perspective for a second. The village of Burbank here in Wayne County, <laughs> twice as populated as Bethlehem. Sugar Creek, three times as populated. Jeromesville, where are the, yep. <laughs> five times as populated as Bethlehem. My goodness, <laughs> marvel at this with me. Marvel at this too. So God wrote this story before the world. Before redemptive history even unfolded, God wrote this story and yet he determined that the little town of Bethlehem is the place where he would touch down. I think God really gets a kick out of using the least, last, and lowly for significant and glorious things. I mean, a little bit of 
biblical theology here for a second, Rahab, the prostitute. God used her to help the weary Israelites to defeat the powerful city of Jericho. Gideon, the average Joe from the humble tribe of Manasseh, God used him to thwart the Midianite army with the help of only 300 men. David, a frail shepherd boy and the youngest of eight more brawny brothers, God used little David to slay the giant Goliath before becoming king of all Israel. Mary, a young virgin girl living in the backwoods of Nazareth, by God's choosing, she would deliver the deliverer of the world. Marvel with me at what the Apostle Paul so eloquently writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 28. God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chooses what is low in the world to overcome what is great in the eyes of the world. I love that God loves to work in ways that confound me and that he has a knack for displaying his strength through the least, last, and low. New Testament with me. Through blind beggars who are poor in pocket through tax collectors who are poor in spirit, through shepherds who are of no worldly nobility, through prostitutes who are used and discarded, through fishermen who have little to no education. Are we sensing a common denominator, a common denominator shared by all those whom God mercifully chooses to display his strength They aren't seeking their own promotion or notoriety or significance. These people aren't reaching for the forbidden fruit of the garden and their own exaltation. And so their lowliness, their humility makes them perfect candidates for God's use. Perfect candidates. For God opposes the proud, 1 Peter 5, 5 but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, Peter writes, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time of his choosing in his way, he may exalt you. Give to him all your anxieties because he cares for you. And he who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will restore, confirm, and strengthen, and establish you. He will do it. He is faithful. He will surely do it. Through you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel. For this prophecy for its recorded fulfillment in the book of Matthew, God goes out of his way, so to speak, to ensure that the inconsequential town of Bethlehem would be the place of the Messiah's birth, just as foretold. Look, Joseph and Mary, they didn't live in Bethlehem, right? It was a census, watch the air quotes, it was a census that 
just happened to be issued by Caesar Augustus in the ninth month of Mary's pregnancy that forced Joseph and Mary to make the daunting 90-mile journey back to Joseph's ancestral town. It was because of a census that just so happened to happen that from the insignificant town of Bethlehem, the significant one would come. He will be born. This is what we celebrate and this is what, with the gift of humility from God, we we bring to the foot of the cross in repentance when we take of the Lord's table. Our posture is one of repentant celebration, humble boldness, right? Somber joy. We have all of us, I'll speak for myself, you know this, I don't have a problem airing most of my own dirty laundry, not everything but I have reached for the forbidden fruit of the Garden of Eden for my own significance, for my own security. Look, I want to be master and commander of my ship. We've all built towers like the the ancient Babylonians in Genesis 11. We've all built towers to the glory of our own names. Shoot, half of my day, if I'm not, even more of my day is spent with this me-centeredness, me-dependence, But now, at the Lord's table, the Messiah has been born, lived, died, rose, and ascended to free me from the bonds of my unrighteousness. Now, at the Lord's table, in acknowledgement of my sin, of your sin, of our sin, in recognition of Christ, our Messiah, we get to repentantly celebrate that God, he opposes the proud. He really does but he gives grace to the humble. Humble us, Lord. The Lord's Supper is for men and for women who have been cut to the heart by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Men and women who are capable of self-examination and discernment. And look, we ask ourselves questions to help us self-examine and self-discern. These questions are these aren't legalistic to ask of ourselves. Before coming to the, to, the, to the Lord's table this morning, am I truly turning from my sin? Am I too, truly trusting in the name of Christ? Lord, in what areas of my life am I operating for my own glory, for my own significance, for my own stability? Where am I trying to build a tower so that, so that my legacy lasts forever? Lord, Where? Asking ourselves these questions are very appropriate in coming to the Lord's table and taking it in a way that is worthy. Am I striving to obey you, Lord, as I prepare to take of the Lord's Supper? Are we truly stewarding our time? I mean, ask yourself this, not legalistically. There's nothing legalistic about obeying God. Am I truly stewarding my time, talent, and money for the glory of God? Are we doing that? Are we truly contributing to the edification of this local church to whom many of us, we have felt called here? As we come forward to take the bread and the cup,
that repentant celebration is the way we, by God's grace, are able to do this in a worthy manner and to not drink judgment on ourselves, being flippant about this. And so as we do take together of the bread and the cup, can you just remember with me, this is a sensory meal, right? I've said this multiple times the last Lord's uh, meal Sundays. As you taste the bread, remember that as real as the bread is in your mouth, so real is the fact that the Son of God became a man and he gave up his body at the cross for you that you might have eternal life. As you taste the bitter sweetness of the juice, remember the sweetness of having your sin forgiven, exonerated. But it came at a bitter cost to Jesus whose blood was poured out for you. I praise Jesus that he did not come to earth to reach for any forbidden fruit or to build a tower to himself. He came to earth in utter humility as a servant to die the death that I and you deserve and to dress us in the righteousness that we could never earn on our own. The essence of our sin is that each of us has substituted ourselves for God, but the essence of salvation and what we celebrate humbly at the Lord's table, the essence of salvation is that God has uh, substituted himself for man on the cross. So I'm gonna pray, and then I would invite those who are serving communion this morning to come up even while I'm praying, it's okay, it won't be distracting, and and then when I'm done praying, uh, you're welcome to, if you're a believer and mature enough to self-examine, um, you're welcome to come forward at any point uh, to take with me and everyone together humbly with celebration and repentance. Okay, let's pray. Oh, Father, he will be born, you said, through your prophet Micah, and he was born indeed. The Messiah, the Messiah, Savior of the world. We thank you and praise you. We thank you and praise you for your purpose in coming. Oh, Jesus, I thank you that you came for the glory of God and not primarily for me. Oh, I am not the center of the world. No one here is, but you, the Godhead, is. And that was a right motivation in coming. I thank you, Lord, for your strategic humble place of choice to be born. The little town of Bethlehem, insignificant, lowly, inconsequential. Oh Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit that you might uh, humble us even as we take of this meal, the body and blood of Jesus poured out for sinners on the cross. I pray that you would remind us you stand in opposition to all the proud, but you give grace and favor to the humble and you use the humble in significant kingdom, powerful ways and I thank you for that. At, no one would have made this up. You are such a marvelous God and you are worthy of us 
declaring the Lord's death together as the body of Christ, taking of the communion in a worthy manner, self-reflecting, self-discerning, Lord, that we might repent and rejoice at the same time that you might be praised and that we might be edified in this meal. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.